Welcome back to the Churchill Podcast. In the first episode, we did a quick overview of Churchill's entire life. In this and later episodes, we'll dive deeper into the various periods of Churchill's long and varied life. Today, we'll begin with his birth and childhood. Let's carry on. On December 26, 1941, several weeks after the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor, Churchill visited the United States and spoke before a joint session of Congress. At the beginning of his speech, he remarked, I cannot help reflecting that if my father had been American and my mother British, instead of the other way around, I might have got here on my own. Many people don't realize that the greatest Britain of all time, as Churchill was voted in a 2002 BBC poll, was actually half American. His father was Lord Randolph Churchill, a member of Parliament, Chancellor of the Exchequer, and Secretary of State for India, but Churchill's mother was Jenny Jerome, a socialite from Brooklyn, New York. But before we get too deep into his parents, let's go further back and examine his American lineage. The story goes like this. In 1816, a man named Ambrose Hall was hunting in a forest located in western Massachusetts when he lost his way. While trying to get his bearings, Ambrose happened to stumble upon a small cottage in the wood and knocked on the door in seek of help. A father and daughter, David and Clarissa Wilcox, lived in the cottage. It was Clarissa who opened the door to find Ambrose Hall standing there. Clarissa went and found her father and they helped Ambrose get back on his way. But Ambrose was struck by the beauty of Clarissa Wilcox and he returned a year later to ask her to marry him, which she agreed to do. At some point, Ambrose and his new bride settled in Palmyra, New York, and they had two daughters, Catherine and Clara. Catherine and Clara end up marrying two brothers, Leonard and Lawrence Jerome. Leonard Jerome embodied the individualist and entrepreneurial spirit of the young United States, and he did many enterprising things throughout his life. He was a lawyer, he owned part of the New York Times, he built an opera house, and he even founded two racecourses, Belmont Park and Jerome Park. Jerome Park didn't see the turn of the century, but Belmont Park still stands today, and is of course famous for being the third and final leg of the Triple Crown race. Later in his life, Leonard became U.S. Consul in Trieste, Italy, and in 1868 he established a home in Paris where his wife and three daughters lived. In July 1870, though, the French declared war on Prussia and invaded the German states. In response, Otto von Bismarck mobilized the forces of Prussia and the North German Confederation and invaded France. The German invasion forced the Jerome women in Paris to seek shelter and safety in England. And while in England, Leonard Jerome's daughter Jenny attended a ball on board a Royal Navy cruiser in honor of the arrival of the Tsar and Tsarina from Russia. Also on board the cruiser that night was Lord Randolph Churchill, who was introduced to Jenny by a friend. It seems the two were smitten with each other from the moment they met. They saw each other several times over the next few nights, and on the last night, Lord Randolph proposed to Jenny, who immediately accepted. Afterwards, Lord Randolph wrote to his father, the Duke of Marlborough, to seek his approval. As any father might in this situation, the Duke thought his son was rushing into things and was being blinded by youthful feelings. The view of the Jerome family was not much different. In the end, though, both families consented, and less than a year later, Lord Randolph Churchill and Jenny Jerome were married at the British Embassy in Paris. Shortly thereafter, Lady Randolph Churchill was pregnant with her first child and son. The pregnancy didn't slow the newlyweds down, though, and they threw themselves into society where they mingled with other members of the aristocracy, the highest-ranking politicians, and even the royal family itself. Seven months into Lady Randolph's pregnancy, she and Lord Randolph were staying at Blenheim Palace. One day, they and the other guests went out shooting when Lady Randolph slipped and fell. She was helped back to the palace and nothing more was thought of the incident, until a few days later she was riding in the back of a carriage and suddenly went into labor. 
the doctors were immediately called to try and stop or slow the birth. Again, she was only seven months pregnant at this time. But the baby was ready to burst forth into the world, and on November 30th, 1874, Winston Spencer Churchill was born. Before moving forward, though, let's take a few steps back. Based on Churchill family lore, Clarissa Wilcox, Churchill's grandmother who married the lost frontiersman Ambrose Hall, was one half Iroquois. This would make Winston Churchill not only British and American, but also part Iroquois. The evidence Churchill and his family members point to is somewhat circumstantial. Today we have new genealogical data which points to the stories being untrue. At the time of young Winston's birth, Lord Randolph was the newly elected MP of Woodstock, and he threw himself into politics, determined to prove himself to his father and live up to the Churchill name. Lady Randolph Churchill, meanwhile, handed Churchill to the nanny, Mrs. Everest, and continued her socializing. This may seem cold and cruel through the lens of the 21st century, but for the members of the Victorian aristocracy, it was business as usual. Also in keeping with the Victorian tradition, Churchill was sent to boarding school at St. George's in Ascot, which is about an hour west of London. Based on Churchill's accounts, flogging with a birch switch was a common form of punishment in St. George's. He said he was sure no Eton boy, and certainly no Harrow boy of my day, ever received such a cruel flogging as this headmaster was accustomed to afflict upon the little boys who were in his care and power. They exceeded in severity anything that would be tolerated in any of the reformatories under the Home Office. Not surprisingly, Churchill hated school, and he couldn't wait to be home with his parents. He would pen affectionately written letters to his parents asking them to come visit, but they rarely did, and he was often disappointed. In his first term at St. George's, Churchill was found wanting academically and behaviorally. He performed well in English, but that was it. Nonetheless, the sadistic headmaster must have divined something in the young man, who he described as having, quote, very good abilities. While he was at St. George's, Churchill became very sick. His parents consulted with doctors who recommended he attend a school near the sea. The doctor's son attended a school in Brighton and suggested that to the Churchills for their own son. Lord and Lady Randolph thought it was a good suggestion, and in September 1884, Churchill started at a school in Brighton run by the Thompson sisters. Unlike St. George's, the Thompson sisters employed the carrot rather than the stick, and Winston's academic performance and behavior gradually improved, and now when he wrote to his mother, he described how happy he was. Shortly after arriving, though, Churchill got into an altercation with another boy who had a reputation for violence. During the fight, the boy jammed a penknife a quarter inch into Churchill's chest. He escaped serious injury, but the doctor warned that it could have been very bad. When Lord Randolph heard about the incident, he remarked that Winston was most likely teasing the boy and had been taught a lesson. In the following spring, Churchill became seriously ill again when he caught a pneumonia and had a fever of over 104. These would be the first of many serious injuries and scrapes with death that Churchill would experience in his long life. There was a silver lining to Churchill's ill health, however. His time at Brighton was coming to an end, and it was time for him to go to another boarding school. The usual options for the children of the aristocracy were Eton, Harrow, and Winchester. Churchill thought he was heading to Winchester, but Harrow was selected at the last minute due to its location on a hill, which was thought to be better for his health. This was great news to Churchill, because Harrow was located just outside of London, while Winchester was located much further away in southern England. Given its close proximity to London, Churchill expected to be able to see his parents much more often, although, in actuality, he didn't. Before he could go, though, he first had to pass the entrance exam. He dreaded the exam, but was determined to go to Harrow, and so he threw himself into his studies and asked his parents for Latin-English dictionaries, a Greek lexicon, and other books and study materials. He passed the exam, but just barely. 
Churchill credited his passing the exam to the headmaster of Harrow, Dr. Weldon, who Winston described as a man capable of looking beneath the surface of things, a man not dependent upon paper manifestations. Thus, in April 1888, at the age of 13, Churchill started at Harrow. Given his poor performance on the entrance exam, though, he was placed in the lowest division of the lowest form and held back from learning certain subjects like Greek and Latin that were reserved for the more advanced or even the more average students. Churchill, by contrast, was taught English and learned it in great detail. He had a great grasp of this by the end of his time at Harrow, and it would of course be of immense help to him later in life as one of the greatest speechwriters and orators in history and as a future recipient of the Nobel Prize in Literature. In his autobiography, My Early Life, Churchill recounts a rather amusing story about a prank he played on another boy at Harrow when he had been there for just less than a month. While walking towards the pool one day, he saw another boy wrapped in a towel and standing on the edge of the pool. The mischievous Churchill, who didn't know the boy, but thought that because he was a similar size to him was fair game, came up from behind him, shoved the other boy into the pool, all while holding onto his towel. Churchill began proudly walking away while the others looked on in horror. The next thing he knew, the boy leapt out of the pool and started pursuing him. Churchill ran, but was quickly overtaken, and he soon found himself underwater in the deep end of the pool. When he climbed back out, he was surrounded by the other onlookers, who hurriedly explained that the boy he shoved was older, the head of his house, a football player, and a champion at the gym, someone who could definitely beat him up. They warned Churchill about the fate that would befall him at the hands of this boy. At this point, he became nervous and actually felt ashamed. He therefore sought to smooth things over. He walked up to the boy and apologized for shoving him in the pool by saying, I'm very sorry. I mistook you for a fourth form boy. You are so small. Clearly, this didn't make things any better. So he added, My father, who is a great man, is also small. At this, the boy laughed and the matter was settled. Churchill doesn't mention who the boy is, but he apparently also grows up to be great because Churchill does mention that they end up as cabinet colleagues in the future. Despite being in the lowest form and still exhibiting some behavioral issues, Churchill was beginning to show signs of promise. He won a prize for reciting to the headmaster in the whole school all 1,200 lines of Thomas Babington Macaulay's Lays of Ancient Rome without making any mistakes. He also passed the preliminary exam for the British Army, while many of his peers, even in the upper forms, failed. He'd always been interested in the military given his ancestral history. John Churchill, the first Duke of Marlborough, commanded the British and Dutch armies during the War of Spanish Succession against Louis XIV, and it was his victory at the Battle of Blenheim that led Queen Anne to build Blenheim Palace in gratitude. Churchill was particularly interested in the Civil War, which ended just nine years before his birth, and was considered a modern war at this time for its use of new weapons like the Gatling gun and breech-loading rifles. Churchill's interest in the military was exemplified by his massive collection of toy soldiers, which he always kept in battle array. One day, Lord Randolph came to visit, a rare occasion, and spent about 20 minutes inspecting his son's troops. At the end of the 20 minutes, he asked Churchill if he wanted to join the army. His son excitedly said yes and felt proud because he thought his father saw military genius in him. Later in life, Churchill would be disappointed to find out that his father supported his decision to go into the army because he didn't think he was intelligent enough to become a lawyer. From this point on, Churchill's focus was on getting into Sandhurst, Britain's Royal Military Academy, and having passed the preliminary exam, he entered the army class at Harrow where he would spend the next three years. The examination to get into Sandhurst consisted of five subjects, math, English, and Latin, which were mandatory, and two optional subjects, of which Churchill chose French and chemistry. A strong showing in three of the five subjects tested was necessary to pass the exam. 
English and chemistry were of little concern to him, but he needed a third subject. He could never quite grasp Latin, and French was equally difficult to learn for him. He enjoyed math, but it was not his strong suit. On his first try at the exam, he scored 500 out of 2,500. Not nearly good enough. But thereafter, he again dedicated himself to learning what he must so that he could advance, and again sought the help of talented and benevolent instructors. We must keep in mind that the math that Churchill is being tested on is not your basic fractions or decimals. It's the quadratic equation, trigonometry, the laws of indices, and other advanced concepts, all without the use and aid of a calculator. On his second try at the exam, he scored 2,000 out of 2,500. Significantly better, but still not good enough. After this second attempt, Churchill was finished with Harrow and now in limbo. He still wanted to go into the army, but he still hadn't passed the exam. He became what he referred to as a crammer and was about to begin studying with a man named Captain James, who was apparently an expert on the civil service examination. Just before Churchill was about to start cramming with Captain James in preparation for his third attempt at the exam, he had yet another serious accident. That winter, Churchill and his family were staying at the estate of his aunt, Lady Wimborne, in southern England. The estate was covered in pine trees that gently sloped down towards the cliffs which guarded the beach below and overlooked the English Channel. At one point of the cliff, it juts inwards towards the land and drops straight down to the beach below. Across this chasm was a bridge about 50 yards in length. While staying at the estate, Churchill, his brother, and his cousin were effectively playing tag. His brother and cousin were both trying to pursue and tag him. After being chased for some time, Churchill turned onto the bridge to escape his pursuers. The other Churchill children, though, apparently also endowed with military genius, executed a pincer maneuver and positioned themselves on either end of the bridge. Winston looked left, and then looked right, and quickly realized he was trapped. Then he looked down. Just beneath the bridge he saw a number of fir trees. Churchill slowly climbed over the railing, made one last glance at his enemies, and jumped. He tried to grab hold of a fir tree and slide down it like a fire pole. Needless to say, it didn't work. He plunged nearly 30 feet to the ground and was instantly knocked unconscious. He didn't wake up for three days. For all of their faults and absenteeism, Lord and Lady Randolph did care for their children. Whenever they were hurt or sick, they spared no expense. In this instance, Churchill's mother raced to the scene of the accident, and Lord Randolph hurried over from Ireland. The finest doctors and surgeons were summoned to repair his ruptured kidney and his numerous other injuries, which were so extensive that he wouldn't leave his bed for three months. Once he was out of bed and fully recovered, though, Churchill threw himself back into cramming with Captain James for the Sandhurst exam. Occasionally, though, he would be blinded by his own confidence and innate optimism, and needed to be grounded by Captain James. While studying history, Churchill told Captain James that, quote, his knowledge of history was such that he did not want any more teaching in it. It's difficult to tell whether Churchill was being brash with this statement or whether he was just being practical. History was one of his strongest subjects, and he no doubt would have preferred to spend more of his time on his weaker subjects like Latin and French. Whatever the reason, Captain James wrote to Lord Randolph that Churchill thinks too much of his abilities and that what he wants is very firm handling. Churchill was finally ready to take the exam for the third time, and this time he passed. Again, just barely. His modest score earned him a place as a cadet in the cavalry at Sandhurst, but it was not good enough for the infantry, which required a higher score. The new cadet was proud of his achievement and excitedly wrote to his father to share the news. His father was less than enthusiastic and wrote back to Winston, quote, I'm rather surprised at your tone of exultation over your inclusion in the Sandhurst list. There are two ways of winning an examination, one creditable, the other reverse. You have unfortunately chosen the latter method. Lord Randolph was partly disappointed because he had planned for Churchill to join the infantry, 
and he had been working his political connections to have his son based in the Mediterranean before transferring to India. Moreover, the Churchills, although part of the aristocracy, were not wealthy, and being in the cavalry meant buying and maintaining a horse, as well as ponies, at great personal expense. It may seem on today, but the government in the 1890s did not provide their cavalry officers with horses, saddles, or other necessary equipment. The summer before Churchill went to Sandhurst, his parents sent him on a tour of Switzerland with his brother and a tutor. During the tour, they hiked mountains, swam, rode boats, and overall just saw and experienced the country. But while on the trip, he experienced yet another near-death experience. As I've mentioned, he will have many of these in his life, and as his life unfolds, it will seem remarkable that he makes it to the age of 30, let alone 90. One morning, Churchill and another boy took a rowboat out on a lake in Switzerland. During the excursion, the two boys decided to get into the water and go for a swim. After a while, they grew tired of swimming and were ready to get on their way and return home. But the boat by now was 100 yards away, and they were a mile away from the shore. The boat had a red awning in the back of the boat for shade, which acted as a sail when the wind picked up. The boys swam after the boat, but the wind kept pushing it away every time they got close to it. Churchill began fearing for his life. In his autobiography, he says, quote, But I now saw death as near as I believe I've ever seen him. He was swimming in the water at our side. Churchill began swimming as fast as he could, trying to outswim death. He got within arm's reach of the boat on two occasions when the wind gusted and pushed the vessel further away. Finally, with a supreme effort, he grasped hold of the side of the boat and climbed in, after which he rode back to collect his friend and return to the shore. Death would have to continue waiting for Winston Churchill. When he finally made it to Sandhurst, he learned the basics of the army, discipline, marching, formation, tactics, weapons, etc. But as a cadet in the cavalry, he also had to learn to ride a horse and spent a lot of time at riding school. He became enamored with riding and even took extra lessons outside of Sandhurst that were arranged by his father. He quickly came to love horses and riding, and polo quickly became his favorite sport and hobby. There's another amusing Churchill story that occurred while he was at Sandhurst. One day, he was walking along a stream when he dropped a gold watch his father had given him into the water, which was very deep at this point. Not wanting to lose an important family heirloom and possibly terrified of upsetting his irascible father, he stripped off his clothes and dove into the icy water to retrieve the watch. The water was too deep and cold, though, and he would never get it by swimming and feeling around blind. So the next day, he arranged to have the stream dredged, but the watch still didn't turn up. He was determined to get the watch back, though, and wasn't ready to give up. So on the third day, he returned with 23 soldiers from one of the infantry regiments nearby and paid them to dig and reroute the stream. Once rerouted, he somehow managed to borrow a fire engine from the college and used it to pump the stream dry, which revealed the watch in the mud and muck of the stream bed. He sent the watch to his father's watchmaker in London to be repaired, but fate intervened and Lord Randolph happened to run into the watchmaker who informed Churchill's father of the damage but not the rescue. Lord Randolph was incensed and when the watch was finally repaired he gave it to Churchill's brother Jack, despite Churchill explaining the lengths he went to get the watch back. Churchill would never get the watch back. His brother Jack ended up keeping it for the rest of his life. This anecdote is interesting on a number of levels. It shows the ingenuity and determination of Churchill and is a preview of the many wild ideas he would later have, some good, some bad, when he was first Lord of the Admiralty during the First World War and when he was directing all the operations of the Second World War as Prime Minister. It also reveals his love for his father and his appreciation of any item or memento which showed his father loved him back. During his time at Sandhurst, Churchill was often invited to the Aldershot garrison where the 4th Hussars Regiment was quartered. The 4th Hussars at this time were commanded by Colonel Brabazon, who was a friend of the Churchill family. 
Brabazon took an interest in the young Churchill and would often invite him to dine with the regiment. In 18 months, Churchill graduated from Sandhurst. Unlike at Harrow, though, he graduated 8th in his class out of 150 cadets. Churchill ascribes this sudden change in performance to the fact that he was actually learning things that mattered and interested him, which is a commentary anyone who's attended school can agree with. But Churchill must have made an impression on Colonel Brabazon at the regimental dinners because he wanted him to join the 4th Hussars after graduation. It seems Lord Randolph was opposed to this because he still thought he could work his connections to get his son into the army. After a while, though, he acquiesced and was proud that his son was to become a cavalry officer. Lord Randolph, however, would never see Churchill as a cavalry officer. In June 1894, Churchill's father embarked on a tour of the world. While he and Lady Randolph Churchill were in Japan, his health began to deteriorate. Churchill's mother planned to take her husband to the south of France to convalesce, but before they could get there, his health took an even greater turn for the worse and was rushed back to London from Cairo. Lord Randolph's poor health was not a secret, however. For a number of years, his health had been declining, and when he made speeches in the House of Commons, his speech would often become slurred. He returned to London on Christmas Eve, and the best doctors were summoned. The Prince of Wales, a friend of Lord Randolph's, even had his own personal doctor check in on the former Chancellor of the Exchequer. Rehabilitation was not possible, however. On January 24, 1895, Lord Randolph Churchill died at the young age of 45. Many have speculated that the cause of Lord Randolph's deaths was syphilis, which would explain his mental decline and slurred speech, but the true cause may never be known. The death of his father was crushing for Churchill. Even though Lord Randolph had never been a traditional father, he did love his son and his son ardently loved him. And at the time Churchill was about to become a cavalry officer, he felt that his relationship with his father was growing and that his father was beginning to respect him as both a son and as a man. He always dreamed of entering Parliament with his father, but those dreams were shattered. Instead, he would have to pick up the torch and pursue the policies his father once pursued. Lord Randolph's death added to the already strained finances of the Churchill family. Before he died, he arranged to have all his money, approximately £55,000, or roughly £7.4 million today, placed into a trust from which his wife, Lady Randolph, could only draw on the income that the trust generated. She could not access any of the original £55,000. The annual income she received was approximately £5,000, or roughly £670,000 in today's money. This was a large sum for the average Londoner, but not nearly enough for a socialite who had always lived at the height of fashion in society. Winston, meanwhile, was left nothing by his father and had to rely on his mother for everything until he could start earning some money himself. Money, therefore, quickly became a common topic in the letters between Churchill and his mother. Churchill always needed more, and his mother always reprimanded him for being a spendthrift. Churchill would never learn, though, and money problems would haunt him throughout his life. In March 1895, shortly after Lord Randolph's death, Churchill officially joined the 4th Hussars under the command of Colonel Brabazon. Joining the 4th Hussars meant even more intense riding school. He had to learn to ride and jump a horse bareback with his hands behind his back. He had to mount and dismount a cantering horse, and he even had to ride at a trot by holding on with nothing but his legs. Not surprisingly, he and the other trainees very often ended up on the ground. At one point, Churchill tore his sartorius muscle in his thigh, but he was unwilling to show any weakness and he continued training and riding, while all the while gritting his teeth as the muscle continued to tear. All of this training was of course in preparation for the legendary cavalry charge, the synchronized advance of hundreds or even thousands of men on horseback towards the enemy. Churchill and his fellow officers didn't know it yet, but these were the waning days of the cavalry and the cavalry charge. In the not too distant future, they would be displaced by artillery and replaced with tanks. But for now, they continued their training and prepared for whatever uprising or war may come about.
Thanks for listening. In the next episode, the fourth Hussars are given leave before being shipped off to India. Churchill decides he's going to spend that time involving himself in a conflict somewhere and is soon on his way to Havana to witness the Cuban struggle for independence from Spain. Until then, keep buggering on.